You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. Let's get into the news roundup. So much news this week. Some of it continues to roil the stock market. One headline grabbed the world's attention and has millions of people talking about science. And of course, there's Elon Musk. Let's welcome our panel first. Wendy Benjaminson is the deputy managing editor for U.S. government at Bloomberg News. Wendy, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Naftali Ben-David is a politics editor for The Washington Post. Naftali, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Reed Wilson. He is the editor-in-chief at Pluribus News, a national outlet following state politics. Reed, thanks for being here. Hey, Amna, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Let's start with Twitter. Now, Twitter has banned the accounts of several high-profile journalists, a move that's been seen by many as an attempt by its owner to silence his critics. Elon Musk suspended accounts belonging to reporters at CNN, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Musk hasn't yet responded to a request for comment, but Naftali, kick us off here. What happened? Who was targeted? Well, initially, he suspended an account called uh, Elon Jet, which sort of followed his uh, private jet where it was. It was sort of a where's Elon now kind of account. This is public information, by the way, and he has not liked this account. He had at some point promised to keep it open as a sort of reflection of his belief in free speech, but he did uh, close down the account or suspend it. And then he followed that up by suspending the accounts of about a dozen journalists who reported on what he had done to begin with. So for a guy whose ostensible reason for buying Twitter was a firm belief in free speech, you know, this raised a lot of eyebrows. And it's got to be said that since he's bought Twitter, his own psychodramas have been a huge part of the story. His fear of being doxxed, you know, he said that he's afraid of being assassinated so people can't know where he is. His appearance with Dave Chappelle, his changing of the rules. So he's really made this a lot about him. And maybe it was inevitable that when a rich person bought a social media platform, this would happen. But it's something we haven't seen before. Well, those accounts were run by this 20-year-old guy named Jack Sweeney. He's out of central Florida, right? One was at Celeb Jets. The other was at Elon Jet. And they were, as you said, Naftali, set up to automatically track and then tweet the details of a number of celebrity jet flights, not just his. Um, They talked about how much fuel was used, how much carbon emissions were released. And actually, Sweeney was interviewed by CNN. and, And here's what he told them about the accounts. I literally had just talked about how the account is like the canary in the coal mine. It just shows that he can continue to do what the last people did at Twitter and they can bend the rules in however which way they want for whoever they want. Wendy, what do we know about what Musk has said about why that account was suspended? Well, Musk hasn't said much of anything about why it was suspended. There was this idea that, you know, his child or his son, I should say, was um, being stalked by someone in a car, which doesn't track with why you would then suspend the account of his jet. But as Naftali said, you know, you have a rich person with a communications platform sort of reminds me of Donald Trump in a way, who Musk has invited back on Twitter, but hasn't because I think he wants to keep his own um, his own platform going. But it's this idea that, um, you know, free sp- it's like the old H.L. Mencken quote, free speech Free press belongs to those who own one. And both Donald Trump and Elon Musk seem to want to um, have free speech as long as it doesn't bother them. But the complicating thing for Musk is he also makes cars and sells cars. And so the danger is that people will start to associate Tesla with his brand and they may not like his politics, they may not like his personality, and they may not buy Teslas. So unlike other people in this space, I think he's got to decide in 
probably pretty fast, whether he wants to be Elon Musk, the social media cultural figure personality, or the businessman who runs a car and space company and needs to actually sell products. Well, Reid, what about that? When you look at this big picture, what what is the Elon Musk strategy here? Is he just looking for a fight with the media when it comes to these Twitter accounts in particular? I'm not sure there is a terribly coherent strategy uh, about this. I mean, the, the Musk's ownership of Twitter almost from the beginning has been a sort of seat of the pants exercise in which he has fired people uh, seemingly at random and uh, changed rules as they as they fit him. Uh, there, I mean, it doesn't seem to be a terribly coherent business strategy uh, around this. And and let's not forget that he actually tried to back out of this the purchase of Twitter uh, after offering to to buy it in the first place. So I, I don't I don't think there's a I, I think the the Occam's razor answer is uh, this is a this is an improvised strategy. Wendy, I also feel compelled to ask whenever we talk about this topic, how much does this really matter? I mean, I know journalists use. Twitter Twitter, we rely on it in a lot of ways. How big a deal is this really for most Americans? Well, I don't know if this particular act is a big deal for most Americans, but many, many Americans do enjoy reading Twitter, enjoy posting things on Twitter. And it's the idea that there is this sort of chaos agent um, running it who may suspend people at a whim, which I think is a bit concerning because many people also get their news from Twitter through our accounts and our news organization's accounts. Um, And there's one other thing to keep in mind. Elon Musk is also a massive defense contractor. SpaceX has massive contracts with NASA, with the Defense Department. And, you know, I'm not sure at some point when the U.S. government will want to take a look at that, whether CFIUS takes a look at his foreign investments. There's there's a lot on the line here. Well, Elon Musk is also no longer the world's richest person. This week, he sold $3.5 billion worth of Tesla stock. Wendy, let's start with that. Do we know why he sold that stock? Well, he owes a lot of money right now. <laughs> when you owe a lot of money, you sell whatever you have to uh, to make more. I mean, he has a tremendous debt related to Twitter, and um, that very well could be why he did cede the position to of richest man to uh, Bernard Arnault, luxury goods um, manufacturer. But you know, let's not weep too hard. I think he is still worth $164 billion with a B dollars. So I'm not too worried about him going hungry. Reed, <laughs> we're, not, we're not worried about Elon Musk here. But ha- how are the investors, Tesla investors, responding to this? Have we heard anything? Oh, yeah. Tesla investors are not happy uh, that Elon Musk is, is focused on Twitter. And by the way, Twitter is one of the smaller things in Elon Musk's portfolio. I mean, to, to Wendy's point, um, you know, SpaceX is is a large and growing uh, defense contractor and and uh, well, space contractor as well. Uh, and you know, Tesla has a market cap well over what Musk paid for Twitter. So it, it's sort of like <laughs> paying attention to uh, the 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 shiny new toy and ignoring the you know the very expensive in this case car manufacturer in the corner. Naftali, this isn't the only time that Musk has, has dipped into that Tesla pot, right? He sold $3.9 billion in shares last month. In, in the business world, how does this affect Tesla's image as a company? 
Well, I don't think it affects it particularly well. I mean, I think, first of all, it has to be said that competition from other electric vehicle companies is also affecting Tesla. So we don't want to attribute everything in the drop in Tesla's stock to simply the shenanigans of its owner. But there's no question that investors want reliability. They want predictability. They want stability. Those are not characteristics that I think it's fair to say Elon Musk is projecting right now. And so people are nervous. And I think you're seeing uh, a loss of valuation of the company and a loss in Elon Musk's personal worth because you can't just go out on the public stage and do these things and have no consequences the economic world. Wendy, when you look at it from the consumer's perspective, I think the other question is, if you don't like the guy, couldn't you just get off Twitter? If you don't like the guy, you don't have to buy his cars. Absolutely. And that is what I think a lot of even some of our colleagues in the journalism business are doing. They're going on other, finding other platforms. It's certainly what Donald Trump did, who went out and got his own platform going. I mean, Twitter is not, you know, a must, a must have for everyone. And that is one of the, you know, upsides of capitalism is if everyone really doesn't like uh, Elon Musk, they'll stop using Twitter and find another site. Reid, how do you look at this? And I, I was just going to say, I, I think there's a th – this is the fundamental risk that uh, Twitter faces right here is that the vast majority of companies don't want to be associated with a, with a political brand or, uh, or, or much controversy. I mean, remember, remember when Michael Jordan said you – know, he was asked why he didn't uh, campaign more for Democrats. He said, well, Republicans buy shoes too. And so at the end, the, the, the largest companies that – contribute the most to Twitter's bottom line, the advertisers like Ford or GM or, or you know, any, any other company in America are fleeing the platform because they don't want their ads to be associated with a, uh, a, a, a political stance. And so Musk, by making, his, his, the, by making Twitter all about himself and by risking Tesla's brand uh, sort of tangentially, uh, is also scaring away the people who are supposed to be making up the main revenue stream of Twitter. I mean, I do think there's a bigger issue, though, than whether or not Twitter is important to the lives of ordinary Americans. And that is the way we communicate these days, by and large, is on the Internet and on social media and on platforms like that. And a very wealthy, very sort of idiosyncratic people can at will buy these things that are essentially the public marketplace and bend them to their own particular preferences. I think that's a real issue and something that has to be looked at. You worried about free speech issue here? Free speech and just in general, yeah, free speech and just the ability to shape something that we all take part in that's a central part. Increasingly, it's a big part of democracy and the way that we participate in our democracy. And if one guy with billions of dollars can buy it and start turning it to his ends, I think that that bears scrutiny. And I think that's a very good point, Naftali, and also a question that Congress and the White House are looking at in terms of what, is, what are these social media platforms? Are they utilities? Are they the sort of thing that everyone uses and then becomes regulated? Or is it a private company that can do what it wants? Up next, what the White House is saying and doing about what's expected to be a COVID surge this winter. I'm Amna Nawaz. This is 1A from WAMU and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, offering online access to licensed therapists. Therapist Joy Berkheimer shares how BetterHelp uses their intake questionnaire to help clients find a therapist that makes them feel comfortable. Finding the therapist that's the right fit for you is like dating. <laughs> uh, you are literally over here swiping and swiping, right? Um, no, this therapist might be good for me. No, they will not relate to me whatsoever. They're not going to understand me. What's really nice about BetterHelp is how they have updated the way that you can search for a therapist that fits you. So now it is so specific around 
hey, what's their gender? What's their cultural backgrounds? People in our country and other countries might feel marginalized for different reasons. And BetterHelp is really good at making sure that you can put your preferences in and set yourself up for having the healthiest space to be honest and flow through your processing. To learn more and get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Well, it has been a banner week for marriage equality. Deciding whether to marry, who to marry, is one of the most profound decisions a person can make. And as I've said before, and some of you might remember, on a certain TV show 10 years ago, (laughs) I got in trouble. (laughs) Marriage, I mean this involved my heart, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal to that person you love? It's not more complicated than that. The law recognizes that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves without the government interference. On Tuesday, President Biden signed federal protections for same-sex and interracial couples into law. It passed Congress with bipartisan support. Reid, we heard that from President Biden, alluding to this a little bit in the clip there. When you look at his track record on LGBTQ issues, what are we talking about? Yeah, so he there was this funny moment when President Obama was running for re-election and uh, it, they, the White House had carefully planned to roll out uh, Obama's support for same-sex marriage, which was a, a sea change. Of course, Obama was the first uh, president to say that he backed same-sex marriage. Uh, and a few, was it days or even hours beforehand, uh, the vi- then Vice President Biden made a sort of off-the-cuff remark that, uh, that uh, yeah, of course, Biden, or of course Obama supported same-sex marriage and uh, sort of took the air out of the balloon. And uh, I, I recall a bunch of the reporting at the time that, uh, that President Obama was not terribly happy. Uh, but this is, I think this is an incredible sea change in American politics. You know, on so many of the hottest button issues like abortion or uh, gun rights or, or the death penalty, public opinion has been pretty static for a long period of time. On same-sex marriage, it is it has changed Incredibly, over the last couple of decades, um, you know, from from 2004, when George W. Bush's re-election campaign used ballot measures against or banning same-sex marriage as a way to gin up uh, conservative turnout. Now we had 12 Republican senators and 39 Republican members of, of the House of Representatives voting in favor of codifying same-sex marriage. So, uh, and and by the way, public support is at something like 80-20 in favor of same-sex marriage. So I don't I don't think there's another issue out there uh, that in, in which public opinion has changed so rapidly uh, than as, as it has for same-sex marriage. Naftali, when it comes to this specific law, this Respect for Marriage Act, what does it do? Well, it protects uh, interracial marriage as well as same-sex marriage, and it requires states not to approve same-sex marriage but to recognize those marriages if they are conducted elsewhere. It also, interestingly, repeals the Defense of Marriage Act from 96, which Joe Biden supported. So, in other words, the Biden who today is hosting this celebratory, raucous event at the White House voted in favor of a bill that defined marriage as being between one man and one woman less than 30 years ago. And it does go to how much things have changed. But I also think we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. There's still plenty of violence against the LGBTQ community. The Supreme Court recently heard a case that has to do with whether or not a web designer would have to design websites for gay couples. 
They seem to be sympathetic to the person who did not want to do so. So this battle is still very much underway. It is extraordinary that 11 or 12 Republicans joined Democrats. But this fight isn't something that's over. Wendy, how do you look at this? Well, I think it's important to remember the impetus for the bill that Biden signed yesterday, which came out of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. And what Democrats failed to do for 50 years is to codify Roe versus Wade into law. And so they don't have the votes now to legalize abortion nationwide and won't with the Republican control of the House starting in January. But they did decide to prevent the conservative Supreme Court from overturning uh, the the ruling that allowed same-sex marriage. And so that's where this bill comes from. But, um, you know, when when they can, Democrats would be wise to, um, to perhaps prevent Dobbs from being... Um, turned into the law of the land as well. Well, speaking of Congress, they have been busy this week. They just narrowly avoided a partial government shutdown by passing a short-term spending bill. It moved through the House on Wednesday. The Senate approved it last night, just ahead of a midnight deadline tonight. Wendy, the the key phrase here is short term, right? So what happens now? Well, what happens now is um, the government does not shut down for Christmas, which is a good thing for federal workers and for people who go to national parks and things like that. Um, But it sets up a really big uh, Christmas season fight where Republicans who, as I just said, will take over the House in January, very much want Congress to wait on the omnibus spending bill for fiscal year 23. Um, They want to wait until they're in charge and they get to um, attach the corporate tax breaks and and, um, restrict spending in other ways. Um, that, um, but Democrats are like, we're in power for two more weeks or three more weeks and we can get this done. Um, I think they do have enough Republican support to get it done um, before Christmas. Uh, certainly the Senate does um, and the House will, well, and the House is still in Democratic hands. And it's important to point out, this is just for a week of funding. Exactly. This is, this is one week. They right. are still negotiating what would be a year-long spending bill. Naftali, where are the sticking points in that? Well, the sticking points largely have to do with the amount of discretionary funding, non-defense funding. But one of the interesting things you're seeing here is that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, is in a very different place from Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader. McCarthy wants to wait and wants to have Republicans be able to make a lot more of the decisions when they take over in January. McConnell just wants to get this done. And I think that tension between McConnell and McCarthy is something you're going to see for two years going forward as McCarthy is pushed to his right. And McConnell, I don't want to describe him as a centrist because he's an extremely conservative partisan guy, but compared to what Kevin McCarthy is going to be trying to do, I think there's going to be a lot of tension there. Reid, I have to ask you about another story that a lot of folks in my circles have been talking about, and I don't think we can talk about enough, but the White House released more documents related to JFK's assassination this week. Tell us about that. Why? So Congress back in 1992 passed the JFK Assassination Records Collection Act, and that measure gave uh, federal agencies, mainly the CIA, uh, 25 years to release all records related to the JFK assassination. Uh, 25 years means 2017. Uh, Both President Trump and President Biden have approved numerous uh, delays on advice from the FBI, the CIA, other intelligence agencies. And finally, this batch of documents 
documents has come out. Now, it's not all of them. There are still uh, thousands more left to be released, uh, Biden says, before uh, June 30th. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and I should be clear, none of these documents appear to change the story around, uh, around the, the assassination, the, the story that, that we all know. Uh, but it, it's a, a trove of new research that, uh, that is going to give a clearer picture of, you know, a chaotic period in, in America. And, uh, you know, this is, <laughs> there are unfortunately some documents that have been uh, deemed missing. And I think that may become uh, fodder for the conspiracy theories that have grown up around the, the assassination for years. Uh, but uh, we should also caution that there are so many thousands of documents that no researchers have gotten through all of them yet. So, uh, may, hey, maybe fodder for a future 1A show. Read the White House is also stepping up uh, what could be a, a COVID response in in advance of a potential winter surge when it comes to to more cases ahead. They said they're going to step up those steps ahead of the holidays. They're bringing back free COVID tests. People can now order four tests per household from that same website, covidtests.gov. Um, the program went away, Reed, right? It went away in September. Why was it paused then? And what do we know about why it's coming back now? So it was paused then because the program basically ran out of money and Congress was not able to allocate more money for that uh, amid Republican opposition to spending more on the on the pandemic. Now the administration has found uh, several billion more dollars uh, to offer more kits. Uh, they're basically using uh, some money that's, that went unspent from the American Rescue Plan uh, that uh, the, the administration passed in, the, in its first year. Um, this, and, and they're doing a lot of administrative stuff, right? They're, they are pre positioning equipment and supplies from the Strategic National Reserve, uh, things like masks and gloves and ventilators uh, for these hospitals, which are overrun. I, I don't think people uh, truly appreciate it, which are overrun now to a the same degree, if not greater, than they were during the worst days of the pandemic because we're not just dealing with COVID-19. We're dealing with a surge in influenza. We're dealing with a surge in RSV, which is a, a totally common and normal thing. But because people haven't been exposed to it uh, for a couple of years, because we've all been sort of locked down, uh, we our, our immune systems are not prepared to respond. And so uh, there, the number of hospitalizations are rising dramatically not just from COVID, but also from COVID. Uh, so this is a, I think what people are calling the triple-demic here. Uh, and there are hospitals across the nation from Maine to California and back uh, that are operating in the, the surge capacity, uh, um, under the surge capacity measures that they were operating under during the absolute worst of the pandemic. Naftali, what about that? Reed's exactly right, right? COVID-19 cases, flu cases, RSV cases, they are taxing our country's hospital systems because of what we're calling this, this triple-demic. And he's right, hospitals are nearly as full today as they were during the Omicron surge last winter. What should Americans expect this winter? Well, I mean, I think that people who haven't experienced the healthcare system recently, you know, might be in for a surprise. I mean, places are really fully, hospitals are fully booked and don't have beds. That's partly because of the surge and partly because of staffing. I mean, they're both understaffed and overbooked and the system's really under strain. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, people in the government need to perhaps uh, realize is a big problem and need to deal with. I mean, Biden's message the other day when they released this winter strategy was sort of this interesting mixture of, on the one hand, things are really pretty good. We've kind of defeated COVID, you know, it doesn't disrupt your 
life the way that it used to. We've done great. On the other hand, be extremely vigilant. Be worried. Here are some tests. Take care. Get your boosters. I mean, a lot of Americans have sort of, in some ways, moved past the pandemic or tried to. They're not wearing masks. You know, they're going to large gatherings. They're not getting their boosters. You know, but we're far from out of the woods. And that kind of difficult, balanced message is something the White House was trying to convey. And I'm not sure if they succeeded. Wendy, what about this surge or potential surge ahead? And this this story that I have to say as journalists, we have all been living through as we're covering it. How are you looking at it? Well, I think one of the things that the White House and the U.S. government needs to continue to push is the vaccines. It's really, I think we're all a little vaccine exhausted. And, um, you know, the, apparently only 14% of Americans have gotten the latest vaccine booster, and only something like 30% of people age 65 and older have gotten that latest booster. And so, you know, that may be contributing. I'm no doctor, but that may be contributing to the surge and certainly gives people a feeling less of security than they would if they had, you know, all five shots that have been available to them. Reed, you look at this from the state politics angle. When it comes to vaccines, is the country tired? Are there still conversations going on about the need to vaccinate? Well, just like the money for free tests ran out, money for promoting the vaccines has also run out, and Congress has not uh, reallo- or has not uh, added more funding uh, to that pot. And so, these vaccines that are available and and incredible miracles of science—I I shouldn't say a miracle. A miracle implies that the work didn't go in, but you know, in- incredible achievements of of science uh, are are available. I mean, I, I keep going to my local CVS here, a couple of blocks away from my house, and there's a a COVID vaccine uh, sort of section in the by the pharmacy, and there's never anybody in it. Um, one of the things that the White House has talked about in this this winter surge uh, is adding uh, funding for pop-up clinic sites, uh, pop-up vaccination clinics uh, in places around the country. I mean, Los Angeles County is operating 800 of them a week uh, alone. But the question is, who's getting them? I mean, there, mm-hmm. there is there's so much supply of the vaccine now, but there's not a lot on the demand side. So uh, that's that's a huge problem here. These are incredible vaccines that are that are are protecting people and saving lives, but people don't seem to be getting them. I do want to touch on a big story out of Los Angeles, where the newly elected mayor, Karen Bass, declared a state of emergency on homelessness just this week. And it was her first official act as mayor. I will not accept a homelessness crisis that afflicts more than 40,000 Angelinos and affects every one of us. It is a humanitarian crisis that takes the life of five people every day. Reed, what does this declaration allow the city to do? So it gives Mayor Bass the power to spend money on facilities and programs basically without going to the city council or going through a bidding process. She compared it to uh, the effort to rebuild the freeways after a, after an earthquake. Uh, oh, when was that earthquake? 87, something like that. Um, but th- this will allow her to uh, spend as much money as she can to address this homeless crisis. And I mean, this is a crisis facing every major city in America today. Uh, it's something that um, is... is well, I mean, it, like there is no good solution uh, that that any mayors or state legislators have found. There's a problem, though, and it, it is that the city council must first approve uh, this uh, emergency declaration. And the city council president says he's willing to work with Mayor Bass, but at the same time, there's a huge scandal going on within the Los Angeles City Council that has drawn protesters to uh, to their city council meetings, and they they haven't been able to get anything done lately. So uh, this emergency order 
is going to allow bass to do things faster, but it's not clear that they're going to have uh, that they're going to be able to uh, uh, sort of solve a crisis that nobody has found a solution to. I want to move on to a groundbreaking announcement from scientists at the Department of Energy. They say for the first time, they produced a nuclear fusion reaction that created more energy than they put into it. This milestone moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of zero carbon abundant fusion energy powering our society. If we can advance fusion energy, we could use it to produce clean electricity, uh, transportation fuels, power, heavy industry, so much more. It would be like adding um, a power drill to our toolbox in building this clean energy economy. Naftali, this is very exciting. What could it mean? Well, it's going, it could mean a complete change in everything from the economy to geopolitics, but there is a lot, long way to go before this has practical applications. Still amazing to see people achieve something like this. Amazing to see. We will follow it for sure. It is the Friday News Roundup. There's still a lot to get to, including the questions and comments you have about the news this week. I'm Amna Nawaz. This is 1A. Welcome back. We have more news to get to in just a moment, but we heard from a lot of you about Elon Musk and Twitter. Stuart emails in, I'd like my government to reconsider their business relationship with SpaceX, my tax dollars. Considering the CEO's impulsive, childish, and vindictive personality, Musk did, after all, hint toward holding essential Ukrainian internet communications hostage through his Starlink deployment, which was largely paid for with American tax dollars. That email from Stuart. Joshua on Twitter says, My family bought a Tesla two years ago, thinking we would only buy them in the future, but Musk's devolution into Q Elon changed our minds. Will not support his company again. He has lost his mind. That from Joshua on Twitter. Meanwhile, back here, we are turning to politics. The election saw a rash of Trump-backed candidates running on former President Trump's lies about the 2020 election being stolen. But on the other side, two groups spent millions of dollars to combat that election denialism. Reid, tell us about that. What's going on? So ironically, these are a couple of dark money groups that don't have to disclose where their money uh, came from, but uh, they're called the Pro-Democracy Center and the Pro-Democracy Campaign. Uh, they funded 126 projects across 16 states, and those projects included everything from ballot measures that were meant to protect the right to vote and, and expand the right to vote in states like Michigan, uh, to turnout campaigns and uh, uh, things like Souls to the Polls projects, which is where uh, basically people... People uh, organize uh, black voters after church services to, to get them to, to uh, vote early. Um, these groups funded a lot of that. And, um, you know, these are it, – it, it's pretty clear now that, that in a very narrowly divided nation, showing up the, – the, the people who show up to vote are going to be the ones uh, – rather, the, the party that gets the most of their core voters out to an election are is the party that's going to win. And so this is – these these efforts to get people to the polls as much as possible uh, are, are increasingly important in modern politics. Reid, it sounds like a pretty big effort, pretty substantial effort. Why was it being described as quiet or secretive? I'm not terribly sure. I think sometimes journalists use secret or inside or, or words like that to, to 
bolster their reporting, if you will. Um, but I mean, this the, it is no secret that both Democrats and Republicans spend millions of dollars every year on on turnout, on on getting people to the polls, uh, and increasingly as the sort of question over election procedures and processes has become a more and more partisan thing, uh, both sides have invested uh, millions of dollars in trying to tweak the rules in their favor. One way that they can do that is through ballot measures. So take, for example, that measure in Michigan, which expanded the right to vote and, and expanded things like early and absentee voting. You know, that's something that Democrats want to see and, uh, and, and that Democrats have used effectively to get their voters to the polls, to make it easier to vote, uh, whereas Republicans in most states have tried to restrict early voting, restrict absentee voting, uh, and, and effectively force more people to the polls on election day itself. Wendy, are we likely to see more efforts like this? Yes, I think we are. And I also think it's important to note that it, there were these quiet secret groups, but there were also groups that were right out there in your face, the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, the Republican Accountability Project, the I Vote Fund. They spent $46 million on advertising, attacking election deniers. And I think there's also, you know, we've, we've sort of, uh, well, I think also the voters uh, really decided that these were not people they wanted to see in office. And so um, these these efforts really helped, especially pay attention to a sleepy down-ballot race like Secretary of State. But when you saw, when the ads ran showing that these people were uh, off the beaten path on a number of issues, I think voters really spoke up. Well, let's touch on Arizona, where the Trump-backed Republican Carrie Lake ran for governor and lost. She's now suing to overturn the election results. She lost to Democrat Katie Hobbs, who was Arizona's Secretary of State, before she won the governorship. Here is what Carrie Lake said on Fox News this week. The election day voting was sabotaged, and that's what our case is going to prove. It's a 70-page lawsuit that reads like a real crime novel. Naftali, what exactly is Carrie Lake arguing here? Well, first of all, it does read like a crime novel, but not in a good way. I mean, if you read that lawsuit, it's full of all kinds of language that seems much more political and, if you will, literary than legal. And so that does make you wonder what the real purpose of the lawsuit is. I mean, it fixates on a lot of things, but one of them is that there were printer problems in Maricopa County um, that were, you know, certainly problematic. They were fixed. I don't think there was any conspiracy there. I don't think there was any ill intent, but it gave people like Lake something to latch onto, and that's dealt with a lot in the lawsuit. But look, these lawsuits, I mean, they, they never succeed. I mean, Donald Trump filed something like, or people associated with him, 60 or so after the 2020 election. None of them succeeded. And so you have to wonder why she's doing this. And I think that it signals that unlike a lot of the election deniers who pretty graciously actually accepted defeat, um, she is taking a stand. I think she wants to remain prominent in these circles. Maybe she's angling to be Donald Trump's running mate. I don't know. But I think that the goal of this uh, lawsuit is at least as much political as it is legal. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Reid, last week, the Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock beat Republican Herschel Walker in that Senate runoff election. It was the second time that Warnock won that seat in a runoff. But on Wednesday, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, called for the end of runoff races in general elections. So, Reid, Raffensperger is a Republican. Why does he want to end the runoffs? 
Well, runoffs are expensive. They are they they are typically not in this case, but typically lower turnout affairs because people are tired of going to the polls and so they don't go again. And they only exist in a few states. And uh, as a matter of fact, most runoffs uh, are exist in the South, and they are a legacy of a time when uh, party machines tried to keep certain people out of office. And and there are interesting histories behind a lot of them. But in most cases, especially primary electoral electoral runoffs were meant to keep black candidates uh, from from winning office. So uh, there might be five candidates running for an office. The one black candidate would get 40% of the vote, but then the leading white candidate would be able to consolidate the rest of the the, the white vote in, in a runoff campaign. Interestingly enough, in Arkansas, as a matter of fact, they established a runoff back in the 1930s to try to prevent members of the Klan from winning uh, partisan primary elections. So these things are really a a relic of a a past era, and they don't do a lot of good. I would point out that if there had been no runoffs in the 2020 election, neither Raphael Warnock nor Senator John Ossoff would be in the U.S. Senate because they both finished behind their Republican uh, challengers that year, but then beat them in the subsequent runoff. In this election, Raphael Warnock uh, finished ahead of Republican Herschel Walker in both the November general election and in the runoff uh, that took place last week. Well, we need to talk about the economy and more big news this week. A report out just this week shows inflation has dropped for a fifth straight month. But on Wednesday, the Fed raised interest rates by half a point anyway. Now, according to new numbers out this week from the Bureau of Labor, gas prices are back down to where they were a year ago before Russia invaded Ukraine. But those savings are being offset by higher prices at the grocery store. So, Wendy, when you look at this, does this inflation slowdown mean that the Fed's rate hikes are working as intended? Well, the Fed certainly believes they are, and they are showing absolutely no signs of slowing down. I mean, just this morning, I think the New York uh, Fed president said that um, this they needed to keep going on this just to sort of, you know, really pound it down and make absolutely sure it didn't raise its ugly head again. I think these they also are afraid of an inflation surge late next year or even a recession. And so I think they're going to keep it up even after four consecutive increases. Naftali, we've heard President Biden touting the these numbers, right? He sees this as progress. Are consumers seeing it that way too? I think consumers aren't sure yet, and he wants to make sure that they do. I mean, we, you know, in fairness to him, he got pummeled for about a year as prices rose, particularly gas and food prices, and it was a real political problem for him. They ended up doing okay, Biden and the Democrats, in the midterms, but not because people like the economy, but sort of despite of that. So he's probably going to announce for re-election in a couple months. I think he wants to reframe the narrative of the economy to look at my policies. They're working. Price increases are slowing. And he's also, by the way, touring every factory opening that he can see and every bridge opening to try to make the point that look at all these bills I passed. They're helping you in your community. So I look at this to some degree at his framing of it as kind of paving the way or preparation for what is most likely going to be a re-election announcement sometime early next year. Reid, how do you look at it? Is this message that the economy is getting better, things are turning around, is that resonating at the state level? I, I, I don't think so. There, there's a perception. Uh, one of the big uh, uh, sort of impacts of inflation comes not just from what's actually happening in the economy, but how people think about it, the perception of inflation. And uh, the perception of the economy, the broader economy right now is remarkably not good. Um, people think that things are a lot worse than I think the, the numbers bear out, uh, but that doesn't really matter because their perception becomes their reality. And, um, you know, it, it, 
there, there are so many things that are that are happening that are good news. Like Naftali talked about all the the factories that are opening. I mean, governors are are announcing new investments in uh, in in chip manufacturers and electric vehicles and and battery manufacturing plants left and right. It's incredible the the amount of of new projects that are being announced. But uh, people don't feel that way, and that is this, I think going to be the central hurdle for President Biden is if he runs for reelection. Uh, talking about how things are going well while acknowledging that people don't think things are going well. Well, former crypto CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF, was arrested in the Bahamas on Tuesday. Prosecutors say that he lied to customers and investors of his cryptocurrency exchange FTX for years. Federal prosecutors charged the founder with eight counts of fraud, conspiracy, campaign finance law violations, and money laundering. Wendy, that's quite a list. Earlier this week, the SEC filed a complaint against Bankman-Fried. What do they say that he did? Well, they they say that he defrauded customers um, of and just ran defrauded customers of this currency that I don't know. I'd probably be better at explaining fusion um, than explaining <laughs> cryptocurrency. But he certainly, um, you know, promised things he didn't deliver, and he used customers' money and investors' money um, to reinvest in in again this this cryptocurrency um, and leaving a lot of people high and dry. What about those customers? I mean, we heard the new chief executive, a man named John Ray, testify before Congress this week. He detailed years of mismanagement that led to the company filing for bankruptcy. What can FTX customers expect? Well, probably to the chagrin of Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers, he said he expected to make everyone whole. Um, So I think there will be a tremendous number of lawsuits of people trying to be made whole. But the problem with cryptocurrency is that its value changes in the moment. And it's hard to tell whether that money is even there anymore. I mean, I also think that this whole episode raises a really central question about crypto, which is, is there something fundamentally flawed about it? Or is this the kind of embezzlement and fraud allegations, we should say, they haven't been proven, that you could find, you know, in any, is it in any other area? And that's been a big question. And I think right now you're seeing senators try to drill down on that. You know, is there something fundamentally wrong with crypto that needs to be regulated in a whole different way? Or... Does this kind of fraud, this kind of wrongdoing erupt in, 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 in anything? Uh, you know, we had a whole mortgage crisis. We didn't ban mortgages. And so that's kind of the debate that's going on right now as Congress tries to figure out how to regulate this Wild West area. But when it comes to crypto, it is deregulated, decentralized by design, right? Is there willingness for lawmakers to jump into the fray? Well, I think there hasn't been, but the question is going to be whether this crisis changes it. And it's also not just this. About a dozen crypto companies have gone bankrupt over the past six months. Now, they haven't all had, you know, criminal allegations associated with them, but it's been an extremely volatile industry. And there's, you know, people on each side, fervent admirers and fervent detractors. And I think one of the big questions is whether the SBF episode is going to add power to those who want to regulate it more closely. Wendy, for anyone following this, FTX isn't the only one in legal trouble, right? There's a number of celebrities, Tom Brady and Justin Bieber and Madonna, a host of others facing lawsuits related to cryptocurrency. What should we know about that? Why are, why are they being sued? Well, they're being sued because, you know, like celebrities do, they want to get in on the hot latest new thing. And that's what crypto is. And so they have been promoting things like the Bored Ape Yacht Club NFT, which are these non-fungible tokens, almost like, I don't know, currency Pokemon cards or something. <laughs> um, that, And they've been promoting them online. 
and you know, and ha- whether they know it's safe or not, and that of course is a problem. You cannot promote something you know is not, uh, you know, is not good or safe or a smart idea. Naftali, after SBF's arrest, is there a sense celebrities might face consequences too? Is this a new era of accountability in crypto? I mean, I don't think we're sure yet. I don't remember lawsuits quite like this. Celebrities obviously endorse a lot of things. But what's becoming clear is it's one thing to endorse sneakers. It's something else to endorse a complex financial instrument. And so there are these sort of longtime legal principles, but they're being applied to a completely new thing. I mean, is Tom Brady or, you know, Madonna? I mean, are they responsible for the flaws of crypto? I mean, I think that's really the question here. And we're going to see it play out in the courts. So far, we've asked you to explain cryptocurrency, (laughs) NFTs, nuclear fusion, and national politics. I don't think we could ask for much more from our panelists. Thank you to all of you. That is Reed Wilson, editor-in-chief at Pluribus News, a national outlet following state politics. And thank you to our guests in studio here, Naftali Ben-David, politics editor for The Washington Post, and Wendy Benjaminson, deputy managing editor for U.S. government at Bloomberg News. You're listening to The 1A Podcast. We'll discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. Let's get into the international edition of the News Roundup. We'll talk about mounting pressure on Iran from the United Nations, a political crisis in Peru, and lots of news out of Ukraine as Russia prepares for a, quote, prolonged war there. Lots to get to. Joining the roundup this week, Nancy Youssef. Nancy is national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Joyce Karam is also with us. She's senior news editor at Al Monitor. Joyce, great to have you here. Thank you, Amna. And Amy McKinnon. She's national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Welcome back, Amy. Thanks for having me. Let's start now in China, where officials are preparing for what's likely to be the world's biggest coronavirus outbreak yet. The country has recently rolled back its zero COVID policy, but the World Health Organization says the explosion in cases began before restrictions were lifted. China's health officials now say it's possible up to 800 million people will be infected in the next few months. Amy, Faced with such enormous numbers, what signs have you seen that China's prepared for what's to come? Well, this is a really kind of remarkable moment in the many twists and turns we've already seen in this pandemic, you know, as the rest of the world is slowly moving on, albeit in fits and starts away from from the pandemic. China, where, you know, COVID-19 originated, is now beginning, is entering the throes of its largest surge yet. Um, Chinese officials are desperately trying to to ramp up vaccination rates, um, you know, treatments, treatment availability for people as well. I mean, you know, China has, for the past two and a half years, done a very remarkable job of sparing its population the worst of worst of this virus. But that now means that there is no herd immunity as there is in much of the rest of the world. But also their vaccines are just not as effective. They use an inactive version of the vaccine, a bit like the seasonal flu vaccines that we get here, as opposed to the mRNA technology and the using the likes of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And they're just not that effective, as effective at preventing serious illness and death. And so when you combine that with the fact that they have a population of 1.4 billion, you know, a large part of their elderly population have yet to be vaccinated, you know, so the, the potential death tolls that we're looking at here are staggering. I mean, I've seen estimates ranging from anywhere from half a million as up to, up to 2 million. So 
very, very bleak months ahead, I think, for the Chinese people. Nancy, let's look at some of those numbers because they are really, really sobering. NPR estimates at least 10 million people in China are at high risk for severe COVID, and some models suggest at least 500,000 people could die. Is there any scenario where you could see China asking for or needing international help? Uh, I could see the latter, but I don't see the former. Um, because, um, well, let's go to your numbers because they are important. Um, as Amy said, 1.4 billion. And so to put that in scale, 85 million are over the age of 60. And so when we're talking about a COVID spread, the one that um, we heard described so beautifully earlier, we're talking about a spread unlike any other country, really, perhaps closest would be India in a very short period of time because um, China's made a very sort of sudden 180. It went from being one of the few countries that was so aggressively um, about zero COVID and flip to um, something we're all more used to, which is pushing for vaccinations. And and that switch has led to the spike that, that we're seeing. And so um, I think one of the reasons we saw that change, by the way, is um, the virus is spreading. This is an Omicron variant um, and it was spreading. And so this is zero t- um, COVID tactics that we saw earlier probably weren't um, as sustainable as they were. And we can't um, forget to mention the protests that we saw um, in the weeks leading up to this that put real pressure on on the Chinese government. And so um, I think overall what you're seeing is a Chinese government that has chosen social, economic, political stability over um, eliminating or reducing sharply the rise of cases. Now, does that mean that they would take the next step and then ask for outside help? It's hard to see it at this point, given how um, reluctantly we got to this point three years into this pandemic. Joyce, what about any additional potential fallout, political fallout, economic harm, assuming that the outbreak in China does play out in the way some experts are predicting? Uh, no, for sure, Amna. I mean, the, the fact that they're rolling back uh, abruptly this this policy is an ac- acknowledgement of failure uh, on part of the uh, Chinese government. Uh, we have to remember this this zero COVID policy that was in place was brutal. Uh, you know, people were uh, locked into uh, their homes. Some lost their jobs, their income. Some didn't have access to food. Some even uh, died in in quarantine. Uh, so where the Chinese government uh, finds itself now, it's the zero COVID policy is unsustainable. Uh, its population is not uh, protected against an infection. And as Amy and Nancy mentioned, the vaccinations... Uh, um, rates uh, lag behind uh, other uh, countries. This also had an economic uh, cost, not just on China, uh, but, uh, you know, on uh, uh, the global uh, economy uh, in, in general. I mean, we saw, you know, the um, the protests at uh, the Apple uh, factory uh, plant, the lockdowns in, in Shanghai, uh, uh, Beijing uh, streets were empty. So this all came at a very heavy cost in China, and now they're willing to take the risk of seeing uh, millions uh, of their population infected. The elderly will be the most uh, susceptible in the country. Uh, there is 11 million at high risk of, uh, uh, you know, hospitalization and death. So this is not going to be uh, a walk in the park, but it's definitely an acknowledgement from China that the zero COVID policy has failed. 
Well, let's take a moment and hear from a few people who are close to this story. Dr. Ben Cowling is an epidemiologist based in Hong Kong. This is what he told NPR's Morning Edition on Thursday. In Beijing, there's already a load of cases and, and other major cities because it's spreading so fast. It's just extremely transmissible. You know, in the U.S., the early 2020, the doubling time was like one week. Now in China, the doubling time is like hours. And reporters based in Beijing have been struck by just how empty the city streets have been, despite the recent lifting of the most severe COVID restrictions. Here is CNN's Selena Wong. So I don't need to scan my code. It feels surreal, though, that I can literally just walk in. Joyce, can you talk about another issue here that it's going to be important if we are going to understand just how bad things are or get, and, and that is China's reluctance to share any trustworthy data on the outbreak? I mean, this is a one-party uh, rule, closed uh, government, so it has it said it will allow uh, mRNA vaccines to uh, expats in the country when uh, Germany's chancellor visited. What we haven't seen this implemented, the information uh, we're getting uh, from inside uh, China is very troubling. Uh, You know, what you mentioned in uh, in the videos, uh, at the same time, access remains limited in in the country to to know exactly uh, what's, uh, what's going on. Uh, But what we have to gear up is high, uh, extremely high level uh, of infections that could impact 10% of the uh, global population. Amy, I wanted to get your reaction to a tweet this week on Thursday from Republican members of the House here in the U.S. This is the tweet. It says, quote, for the past two years, House Democrats have kowtowed to communist China and gone along with their COVID-19 cover up. In 19 days, that ends. House Republicans will hold communist China accountable for unleashing COVID-19 on the world, end quote. Amy, when you look at that quote, what what reasons, if any, might there be to believe that a newly reconfigured Congress, when Republicans will assume majority uh, control in the House, will find out anything new about the outbreak? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, COVID-19 and the origins of the pandemic is just one area that House Republicans have promised to launch investigations into when they take over the gavel of the House early next year. Um, COVID origins are certainly going to be one investigation. Another major one which we're watching for is an investigation into the um, the last days of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the very, the very chaotic way that that was handled is something I think that they're also going to be looking into. There's been talk about investigations into Hunter Biden and his business dealings and all that. So I, th- I think we can, on both many uh, foreign and domestic policy fronts, expect some pretty contentious, uh, almost Benghazi-style investigations coming out of the House next year. Nancy, back on the COVID front, it's important to remember for a while, China was seen as the the leader in terms of least amount of of COVID cases, of lower death rates, and and so on. When you look at that tweet from House Republicans, to what extent do you think we might see a lot of schadenfreude in the coming months from the U.S. and from other countries who China attacked um, for how their governments handled COVID? 
Well, it's a great question because so many um, at one point were admiring the fact that China was able to keep its numbers down. Um, I think the challenge has been throughout uh, for each government is that balance between public safety and freedom of movement, economic movement. And, and we saw China approach it sort of on one end of the spectrum. We've seen countries like Sweden, for example, take, um, if you want, the other side of the spectrum. And so this there will be a lot of, I think, re-examination about how to approach pandemics. But I don't think um, we've seen enough of a discussion across the world, and certainly not in the United States, about um, addressing pandemics going forward. I think it's such a focus has been on COVID-19, but we haven't seen enough of a discussion about how to prevent and address pandemics going forward. This week, the White House hosted the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, a gathering of 49 leaders from African countries and the African Union. It was the first summit since 2014, and President Biden vowed to increase U.S. influence in the region, promising $55 billion in initiatives over the next three years. This forum is about building connections. It's about closing deals. And above all, it's about the future, our shared future. We've known for a long time that after success and prosperity is essential to assuring a better future for all of us, not just for Africa. Nancy, it can be said, it has been said, the U.S. is lagging other countries when it comes to its relationship with African nations. In the years since that last U.S.-Africa summit, a a number of nations have hosted African leaders, including China and Russia and, and members of the European Union. What do you think President Biden hoped to achieve with this summit? Well, you're right. Other nations have been much more engaged, and two of them, the U.S.'s biggest rivals, and and in a very um, pronounced way. Um, Russia is Africa's biggest arms supplier. China is its largest trading partner. And since 2014, those relationships have only progressed and solidified. And so while they didn't want to say the word, I think one thing that the U.S. was aiming at is um, pushing back in some of China's influence across the continent because they see it now as increasingly um, a national security threat. The U.S. approach to Africa has been largely um, around security issues, the rise of extremist groups, and Russia and China, I think, have had a more um, invested, sustained relationship, whereas the U.S. one has been a, a bit in fits and starts. And so this commitment of $55 billion dollars over three years, the promise to uh, visit the continent by the president, the administration's support for the African Union becoming a permanent member of uh, G20, were all signals from this administration that U.S. wants to reinvest in Africa. I think the question you, we heard throughout the week from leaders is, is this an enduring commitment or like the past, will it be a little bit more inconsistent? Well, Nancy, you touched on this, but uh, a possible presidential visit, those, those are pretty big deals. What do we know about that? Well, we haven't heard the specifics of when and what nation, but I think it was met with um, warmly um, by the African nations because it was a tangible, right? As you rightly note, that is not a small um, uh, reach out by the administration. It doesn't happen frequently. And it's such a demonstrative display by the administration that it is, in fact, committed to the continent. Well, Amy, as we mentioned earlier, 49 African leaders met in Washington for this summit. When you look at that list of who was invited and who wasn't, what stood out to you? Well, certainly, I mean, the countries that that weren't invited on the list were largely those, there was five countries that weren't invited who've had coups in recent years. And so I think, so Guinea, Sudan, Mali, Burkina Faso. And I think 
Washington was acutely aware that inviting them would give some kind of veneer of legitimacy to their to their military juntas. Um, I mean, I think one thing that was interesting watching the summit is what it tells us about the Biden administration's approach to diplomacy and particularly to the thorny issues of engagement of countries that have, you know, very poor human rights records. I mean, we saw this with the, the Summit for Democracy as well. And the administration, I think, clearly likes to err on the side that engagement is better, that it is better to have um, these leaders kind of inside the tent and, and in conversation with the U.S. rather than, you know, excluding them um, uh, based on their human rights records. And that's also, you know, that's clearly something that has caused controversy, particularly amongst rights advocates and activists on the continent. I mean, we were reporting this week that um, the president of Equatorial Guinea was was one of the leaders who was invited. He's the world's longest serving dictator who has a very, very bleak human rights record. But, the, but you know, D.C., Washington is, is very interested in courting him um, because of reports that China is looking to establish a naval base in Equatorial Guinea, which would give them this very strategic foothold on the Atlantic. So you can kind of see the administration trying to walk this very fine line, not necessarily always getting it right, but between engagement, between that strategic competition with China on the continent. But at the same time, this is an administration which has promised it will speak out on things like human rights and democracy. So it's a very delicate needle that they've been trying to thread this week. Well, among the leaders at the summit, Rwandan President Paul Kagame, he pushed back this week over calls to release Paul Rusisa Bagina, a rescuer during the 1994 Rwandan genocide, who the U.S. says is being wrongfully detained in Rwanda. Kagame suggested that only an invasion of his country could lead to the release of Rusa Sabagina. Amy, most people know this man, Paul Rusi Sabagina, as the hotel manager who was credited with saving hundreds of lives during the genocide. His actions inspired that movie, Hotel Rwanda. What can you tell us about why he remains detained? Well, he, I mean, he because he he presents a you know a threat to what has now become unfortunately a, a regime in Rwanda um, to a very you know increasingly authoritarian government. I mean, the fact but the fact that the Rwandan leader was invited, I think, you know, gets to what I spoke about earlier about this trying to you know coax African leaders you know to to maybe do the right thing on human rights and democracy. Um, but certainly that presents headaches for the the administration. I mean, the Rwandan leader made made headlines this week by saying that he won't be bullied into choosing between the U.S. and China. Um, and you know, I, I think that goes to this um, the strategy that they're trying to pursue of trying to to check Beijing's you know inroads in Africa, which is in part because they have deep concerns about China using so-called debt trap diplomacy, giving these immense loans for infrastructure projects that can then lead countries beholden, but also kind of meaningfully trying to engage with African countries as well, and both in terms of, you know, investment and aid and, and, and bilateral cooperation and things like that. And Rwanda clearly feels that it is um, is caught in the crosshairs between those those two objectives of Beijing and, and Washington. Well, let's talk a little bit more in detail about Somalia and the realities on the ground there, because the country's seeing its worst drought in over 40 years. That's led to 5.6 million people facing malnutrition. That is according to the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, or IPC. Uh, but the IPC, the United Nations-led organization that monitors hunger globally, says what's happening in Somalia does not constitute a famine. Nancy, when you look at this, by their own numbers, more than 200,000 people are right now living in famine-like conditions. So why, why is this not a famine? It's a great, great question. Be, well, let me back up and say let's go through the formal de- 
declaration, what, what it entails. It requires one-fifth of households having extreme food gaps, 30% of children being acutely malnutritioned, and more than two out of 10,000 people dying each day. So what the IPCC said was, statistically, um, Somalia is not there yet, but it's very close. And I, I think it's so frustrating um, when you see the images coming out of Somalia that, the, that because they don't meet that technical threshold that, that we can't declare a famine and as an international community galvanize a response is very frustrating because the suffering is real. It is pronounced and even the IPC says it's very close to reaching those numbers. And so um, we have a dance now where a technical um, threshold has not been met, but the suffering is real. It is pronounced. I, I should note that the declaration has only happened twice um, in the last um, 12 years, most recently for Somalia in 2011. And in that case, 260,000 people died. Nancy, you mentioned it's, it's a technical declaration, but how does that declaration, how does that label affect the type of aid that Somalia can and, and could receive from the international community? So essentially, it is, allows you to galvanize global attention, to unlock a vast amounts of donations, um, and it really sort of puts an international spotlight on the crisis. Now, for Somali's leadership, they have indicated is that very spotlight that they worry about because they see it as um, potentially hurting their economic development um, and that it could lead to um, further setbacks. And so the, the classification as a famine opens a lot of other technicalities in terms of funding and support. Um, politically, it creates um, um, a lot of attention on what's happening there um, and could lead to private donations. Um, but according to the Somalis, it comes at a cost that they are not willing to uh, endure. And I should note that in other cases where nations have been declared um, as suffering from famine, they have from their perspective, suffered a stigma that has stuck with them for a long period of time that has hurt them economically um, subsequently. Meanwhile, lots of news out of Iran this week. Let's start at the United Nations. On Wednesday, Iran was ousted from a U.N. women's group for, quote, policies contrary to the rights of women and girls. This year is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the United States ambassador to the United Nations. The United States has long stood for gender equality and basic human rights. We had to act. Iranian women have clearly called for us here at the United Nations to remove Iran from the Commission on the Status of Women. It was a sensible request. Iran's membership directly undermines the Commission's work. Its membership was a stain on our credibility. Joyce, this campaign to remove Iran from that commission was led by the U.S., but not everyone supported it, right? There were 29 votes in favor, eight against, including from Russia and China, and 16 abstentions. What can you tell us about Iran's removal? Uh, yes, Amna. It is actually absurd that Iran was elected to uh, the UN uh, Commission on, on Women uh, last uh, April. This is a country that uh, uh, very much subjugates women. If you're an Iranian woman, you can't sing, you can't dance, you can't go in the street uh, with your hair uh, uncovered. And we're, we're seeing what's happening since September in Iran because of these issues. That's the only reason that uh, the U.S. had the 
leverage to to push uh, this uh, resolution forward. It was interesting seeing who voted uh, yes and who voted no and who uh, abstained. It's interesting, uh, for example, that allies of Iran, including uh, uh, Syria, uh, Cuba, and uh, uh, Venezuela, did not vote. Uh, no. Uh, it is also interesting that Russia and China were the main uh, defenders of, of Iran at the, uh, at the UN uh, body. But um, this, this whole episode of having, uh, you know, countries that violate human rights, that violate women rights, sit on UN bodies such as uh, the status uh, for women and the Human Rights Council is, is a problem at the United Nations. We see it, you know, sometimes with other countries in the region, such as Saudi Arabia sitting at the Human Rights uh, Council or, uh, uh, or Egypt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure or this uh, vote against Iran fixes uh, that problem because it's still very much, uh, uh, you know, a campaign of geopolitics. Joyce, when you look at this removal of Iran from the commission, do we have a reaction from Iran, uh, from Iran rather, about about uh, being we removed? Have, y- yes, we have actually two reactions. The Iranian government condemned the uh, the removal, called it, uh, uh, you know, a, a ploy by the by the U.S. and the and the West. Uh, but it was interesting that we saw in the town of Mahsa Amini, the Kurdish-Iranian woman that was uh, that were that, that died in police custody in uh, on September 16, we saw fireworks erupt in, in that town after the uh, removal uh, of Iran. And this, this is almost similar to the reactions that are coming out of uh, out of the country when uh, the regime is is being punished. We saw uh, a similar uh, reaction when. Iran lost uh, in the World Cup to uh, to the United States, and that just tells you that uh, today is the three months anniversary on the protests, and we're very much looking at a trend of a divided uh, society of uh, people who are fed up with the uh, status uh, quo and of a movement that could go on um, uh, for, for a medium and uh, the medium term in Iran. And it is the longest uh, duration of protests that the Islamic Republic has faced since it came to power in 1979. Meanwhile, the courts in Tehran have sentenced 400 people to jail for terms of up to 10 years over their involvement in those protests sparked by Masamini's death back in September. Amy, this week, Iranian authorities executed a second protest detainee. There was the public execution of a 23-year-old man, Majdraza Ranavar. It came less than a month after he allegedly fatally stabbed two members of a paramilitary force. What do these executions and the arrests tell us about Iran's response to the demonstrations? Well, these arrests and these executions come as as the regime is desperately trying to tamp down this outpouring of public anger that we've seen following the death of Masa Amini, um, who died in police custody. Um, 
you know, I, and I fear that this may be only just the first wave that we're going to see of, of executions and sentences. You know, Amnesty International has already warned that there are potentially as many as 20 other individuals who are at risk of execution. You know, 400 people were sentenced this week, but over 18,000 people have been connected, have been arrested, sorry, in connection with the protests. And so I, you know, I fear that we, we may see many more draconian punishments handed down in, in, in the weeks and months to come. Nancy, briefly, if you can, how do you look at this? What's ahead in Iran? Well, what I've seen over the past few weeks is an authoritarian regime trying to use scare tactics, trial ballooning things to bring protests down so far unsuccessfully. Last week, we saw, for example, um, a suggestion that the rules requiring hijab um, might not be as um, enforced as they were before, this time using uh, the threat of prison to uh, quell protesters all of it efforts to sort of uh, on the edges try to address um, the concerns of protesters, but not substantively. And I think it's one reason you haven't seen them effectively um, quell um, uh, three months of of people courageously um, going up against these threats and asking for, for real enduring change. Also worth noting, a scoop this week from Axios, they found an upcoming report to the U.N. Security Council about Iran's compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal does not accuse Iran of supplying Russia with drones for the war in Ukraine. That is, despite pressure from the U.S. and its allies to do so. This week, the Wall Street Journal and others reported that the U.S. is poised to approve sending a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine. Nancy, you first reported on this. On, on Monday, Ukraine's president pressed Western leaders to provide more advanced weapons to help his country in its war with Russia. The Patriot would be the most advanced surface-to-air missile system that the West has provided to Ukraine. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling told CNN this U.S. system is both expensive and complicated. Each missile costs between three and five million dollars. Not the launcher, but the missile. And it has missiles, radars, a generation system, and a command and control system. So this is a big organization that does have long range and high altitude capability. It's designed to shoot down large aircraft and cruise missiles. And the basic training for those who fire these missiles and the repairmen and the suppliers It takes not weeks, but months, and in some cases, years, to learn this system. So Nancy, explain this for us. Why is this happening now? It's a great question. So um, General Hurtling does such a good job of describing the capabilities of the Patriot, which is sort of the flagship air defense system within the United States. Over the past few weeks, we have seen um, Russia launching strikes on Ukraine's infrastructure. They are doing that from um, their own sanctuaries far away. And so the Patriot would be the most sophisticated air defense capability to thwart those attacks. Right now, the Ukrainians have the S-400, a Russian system. It doesn't have the um, level of sophistication that the Patriot has. If you had a Patriot in place, those missiles would be stopped from hitting Ukrainian infrastructure, for example. And in that scenario, Russia would have to come closer to Ukraine's borders, use dumber bombs to strike that same infrastructure, put themselves at greater risk. That's the appeal of the Patriot. The challenge, as General Hurtling described, is it's a complicated system. It's hard to see a scenario where Patriot could just show up on the battlefield in the next few weeks. Um, in addition to that, it's um, 
very coveted. Every combatant commander in the United States wants more patriots. There, there are not enough of them from the U.S. perspective to, to guarantee its own security. And so giving up one is, is a big one for, for the United States and for its partners. But I think the vision of it is that it would be the premier system that would help Ukraine defend itself against these uh, attacks on its infrastructure in a way that no other air defense capability could do. Well, Amy, unsurprisingly, Russia hid back at these reports, right, that the U.S. is poised to send the Patriot air defense system to Ukraine. The Kremlin has called it a, quote, provocative move that, quote, can lead to unpredictable consequences. What are the risks about escalation here at a time when President Biden says he's he's ready to talk to Putin about a peace deal? Well, the risks of escalation is something that the Biden administration has taken very, very carefully with every announcement of a new type of weapon going over or a new type of military aid package over. So I would, you know, strongly guess that they have thought through the risks of escalation uh, of giving Ukraine Patriot missile batteries and have concluded that, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, You know, and Moscow has, the other thing to know is just Moscow has saber rattled before this war, during this war, they will continue to do so. You know, it is what we have come to expect from the Kremlin is, you know, these these kind of thinly veiled threats, the threats of nuclear annihilation and doomsday uh, scenarios. I mean, I would actually say they've done this years before. They've been doing this, this um, for many, many years now. So it's always a concern, you know, when a nuclear powered state threatens uh, unpredictable consequences. But my, my bet would be is that these these may be some hollow threats. And actually, if there are any consequences as a, as a result of this decision, it actually will be, unfortunately, Ukraine, which will, uh, will, will pay the highest price for them. Also this week, there's new reporting from the New York Times that unveiled a trove of leaked emails. Those emails detail how Russia's biggest state broadcaster used content like this to help craft a narrative that Moscow was winning the war in Ukraine. These policies have driven Russia, China, India, Turkey, and other countries to accelerate their flight from the U.S. dollar. Now, to be clear, that's the majority of the global economy. This may be the most reckless and destructive thing any American president has ever done to the United States. If the war in Ukraine ended tomorrow, we would live with the consequences of that loss of the U.S. dollars, the world's reserve currency, for the rest of our lives. That was Fox News's Tucker Carlson earlier this year. Joyce, what can you tell us about this investigation by The Times and what it tells us about Russia's propaganda machine? I'm not. It's a superb investigation. It confirms what we knew for a while now, that Russia runs a very sophisticated and skilled uh, propaganda and disinformation machine. Uh, but we are now at a time when uh, Russian authorities are and, and journalists are directing uh, their, uh, their newsrooms to pick uh, clips from uh, Fox News. Uh, there is this quote, be sure to take... Tucker, uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, host of Fox News and other outlets. The goal here is to uh, manipulate and uh, keep uh, full control of what the Russian citizen, what the Russian, average Russian is hearing about uh, the war uh, uh, in Ukraine. And they're very much uh, succeeding in that while using uh, clips from Tucker Carlson that, for example, the U.S. was hiding secret bioweapon research labs, which wasn't uh, wasn't uh, confirmed. They uh, use other information, for example, that uh, China is a loyal ally uh, 
for Russia against the West. But when we see in reality, it's, uh, you know, China has not provided Russia with the military uh, weaponry that it asked for. And it had tried to remain a little bit uh, neutral in, uh, in in the conflict. But all of that, uh, you know, is just a glimpse into uh, how Russia is is maintaining this, uh, this hold on the flow of information within Russia. And so far, it's, uh, it's working along with the crackdown. We've seen protests early on against the war in Russia, but uh, we're not seeing much of that uh, at the moment. I do want to touch on Peru as well, where violent protests this week continue to disrupt the economy and tourism. A judge there has ruled that the country's ex-president, Pedro Castillo, will remain in custody for 18 months while authorities build their case against him for inciting a rebellion. He faces a decade in prison. Amy, explain to us who is protesting in Peru right now and what are they calling for? It's been a pretty incredible uh 10 days now for for Peruvian politics. I mean, last week, the now former president, as you mentioned, Pedro Castillo, attempted to dissolve Congress. Um, He'd been locked in a standoff with the legislature since he took office last year. But the Peruvian Congress responded quickly, impeaching him, and Castillo was was very quickly imprisoned. His his term in prison has now been extended, I think, to, to 15 months of, of pretrial imprisonment. But his removal sparked waves of protests by his supporters who view this as, as illegitimate. These have so far largely been concentrated in rural areas, with, with some groups staging attacks on police stations, airports, and kind of other other pieces of infrastructure, which which led to this, this decision um, to impose martial law, which is the first time I should add since the 1990s when the country was was battling with the Shining Path, ter- Path terrorist group that that a martial law has been declared. The new president has vowed that there, that there will be no bloodshed over this issue. So I think you know this is them really trying to to get an early handle on protests before they before they spiral out of control. But it's unclear whether this decision may actually just fuel further unrest, right? Because if you're already against the decision of re- removing the president, the imposition of martial law, I think, may only um, uh, further uh, infuriate these groups. Well, another topic I have to get all of you to weigh in on that I know has been a topic of much discussion here with the 1A team, the match that could be Messi's final opportunity to win a World Cup. Nancy, Sunday's game is likely to go down in history, right? It's either going to cement Messi's legacy or give France a second World Cup in four years. Tell us about the storylines out of Qatar that you're going to be following this weekend. So many. Not only uh, would Messi get his first World Cup if he wins out of, this would be out of three times. If he doesn't win, his potential protege would have a second before the age of 24. So we have the two best teams um, up against each other with two star players. And so I think this will be a riveting game and and will either um, kick off someone's uh, career or or be the final chapter in, in another, in the case of Messi, because he said he will not be participating um, in the World Cup after this. This will be his last match. And so, so many, so many thread lines. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, though, um, it's, the, it's the capstone on all sorts of fabulous storylines that have come out of the World Cup, most notably, um, and 
in a very biased way, I must say, Morocco and um, and it's run up to this game. I, I think uh, I'm Egyptian and I'm one of those who felt so much pride in what Morocco was able to achieve and their ability to create a climate of nationalism around um, the Middle East, across the African continent, what they were able to do. The you know we live in an environment of silos and here we had a movement that just spans so many borders and political views and um, and really gave voice and 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 pride um, to huge swaths of the world. So um, that's a long way of saying thank you, Morocco. Congratulations to France. And this will be a riveting game um, and and really um, uh, worth watching. Nancy, if ever there was a time journalists can reveal their bias, I think this this is it. Uh, <laughs> Thank but, you. It's not natural. <laughs> World Cup is clearly capturing a lot of people's attention. We've got tweets coming in. Michael Townsend tweets this. Shout out to Morocco for making the World Cup semis between Africa and Muslim nations. They were arguably representing over a third of the earth in that semifinal. So, Joyce, we saw France defeat Morocco last week, ending that dream journey. The Cinderella story is the first African nation to reach the semifinals. Talk to me about Morocco's performance in terms of expanding its global visibility in sports and, and maybe beyond. Well, building up on Nancy's bias, I, I share that, <laughs> I completely share that bias. It was a historic, beautiful, electrifying um, run from Morocco in, in, uh, in, in this World Cup. I mean, they've beat Belgium, ranked second. They've beat Portugal and, um, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo's ambitions at, at taking a World Cup. He's another one that may exit uh, the scene. And we've seen, I mean, this, this uh, the African countries, the Arab world just come together to, to celebrate, to uh, be inspired about this game, about the tournament that historically have gone to uh, uh, Latin American or European uh, countries. I don't think this will be the last we'll see of uh, Morocco. And uh, hopefully what this will bring along with, uh, I mean, the Saudi the Saudi team also performed well beating Argentina in that uh, first game. Hopefully we'll see more investment in, um, in that part of the world when it comes to football, to soccer. Uh, and uh, we'll see, you know, these players, Hakimi and others, continue to, uh, to make news in, in the European leagues or wherever uh, they end up going. Uh, the game on... Sunday will definitely be riveting. I mean, you have Kylian Mbappe and you have Messi, uh, you know, performing his last dance. Will he be uh, following in the footsteps of the great uh, Diego Maradona? Um, we shall see. I mean, France is a tough, uh, tough team to beat, but it, it seems the popular sentiment uh, in that in the Arab and the African world is mostly with uh, Argentina. But uh, let's see what happens on Sunday. Amy, at the same time, we need to mention that a lot of focus over this entire Men's World Cup has been on the host nation, right? The, their human rights abuses, the autocratic rule in Qatar. Are there any indications that FIFA, soccer's world governing body, will be more critical in its selections for host nations for future competitions? I mean, there's nothing from its past record that would suggest that it's going to take much of these criticisms on board. I mean, the previous World Cup was was held in Russia, which is, has its own uh, very very bleak human rights record. And at the time it was held, it was occupying you know large large chunks of of Crimea and, and Ukraine. So 
I'm not terribly optimistic that they're going to take this on board. There was, of course, a lot of questions about how Qatar, you know, was awarded the World Cup in the first place. Um, uh, but it's certainly been, uh, you know, from a kind of foreign policy and, and politics pers- perspective, it has been, you know, aside from the um, the wonderful narratives of the actual football, the games being played, um, uh, it's been uh, it's been interesting to watch, you know, how how Qatar has tried to, you know, both position itself on the world stage with, you know, as countries do using these games as an opportunity to really exhibit their countries and at the same time, you know, I- imposing um, I- extremely, uh, you know, severe uh, punishments on on those in attendance, you know, banning rainbow flags and things like that. Um, it's been interesting to watch the Qataris try and try and balance these two things. And Amy, I'll, I'll put you on the spot here. I think Joyce and, and Nancy have made their biases clear. They are Team Morocco. What about you? Well, I'm from Scotland. We never we we haven't made the World Cup in I think six World Cups. So once England has been knocked out, you know I I have no real skin in the game. But I was definitely rooting for Morocco, of course, um, along with Nancy and Joyce. You know, first African and Arab country to advance to the finals. It would have been it would have been a fairy tale. It would have been a beautiful story for for huge huge parts of the world. I feel like France has has won the World Cup enough, but um, it's going to be a great game on Sunday. Wish it, them both well. It will be a great game indeed. I want to thank my guests for this hour. That was Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, Joyce Karam, Senior News Editor at Al Monitor, and Amy McKinnon, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Aguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.